as a young boy, I believed that, uh, that I could earn my way to heaven. And it's such paragraphs like this that, that uh, show that that is, is not correct. I'd like to read from chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verses 12 to 17. And this is really, what I want to do today is tell you Paul, the Apostle Paul's testimony. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's where I'll stop for now. Uh, so as a young boy, I believed that I, I could uh, earn my way to heaven. Uh, and I think I got that more from teachings about Santa Claus than I did from the Bible. I just, I don't remember, I was not really taught that in church. The church I attended uh, believed in the gospel. They believed about Christ. But I just kind of uh, thought that. And uh, I mentioned in our, to our congregation this past Sunday that most world religions are founded on that, whether it's Hinduism Buddhism, Islam, all are based on the idea that if you live a certain way and you do it well enough, then you can achieve heaven. If you know anything about the teaching of reincarnation, it is extremely hostile to uh, biblical Christianity because it's rooted in a works philosophy. Here's, here's how it works. See, in Hinduism, uh, according to whether you perform well or not in this life, you acquire either good karma or bad karma. And then that karma in a later reincarnated life brings you farther along the path to heaven or it takes you farther away. And so in the course of your later lives, if you live perfectly enough, then eventually you become a god yourself and achieve heaven. Uh, we had a counselor here years ago, Dr. John Grawley, and I heard him say once, he said, you know, it's funny, everybody that believes in reincarnation They'll always say that, well, but in my previous life, I was like a prince or a princess or I was a king. He said nobody ever says they were a dishwasher or anything like that. <clears throat> this month is uh, the anniversary of the Protestant, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And that was over 493 years ago. Uh, Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic priest, he was also a college professor, uh, he, he nailed these 95 Latin theses to a, basically a public bulletin board. It was a castle door of a church in Germany, in Wittenberg, Germany. And he invited public discussion on a number of subjects. Uh, none of those include what we call teachings that we hold dear to the Reformation of salvation by faith alone, grace alone, the scriptures alone. Those 95 theses didn't deal with any of that. The, they dealt with a, a bad practice that was going on in the Roman Catholic Church then of the, the selling of indulgences. But within three years of that happening, uh, the Protestant Reformation as we know it was underway, though that was never Martin Luther's intention uh, when, he, when he initiated the public discussion on those, on those theses. 
At a personal level at that time, he was wrestling with a basic question, which is, how can I get right with God? How can I know God? And so that's what was happening in his heart personally at the same time these other things were going on outside. Now, I think this passage answers the question that Luther was asking. How can I get right with God? These are words that Paul writes to his young pastor friend, Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus, the ancient city, a large city, a metropolitan city. And he's giving him instructions on the, the church, on organizing the church, on in, um, instructing leadership, training leadership, and so forth. But here Paul writes about himself, and he's writing about the message that had been entrusted to him as a missionary, and he tells about his own conversion. And he mentions three things in particular in, in verses 12 and following. First, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, says in verse 12. Strength to carry out ministry. Second, he said, I thank Christ that he considered me faithful. That's in verse 12. That his, his faithfulness was, was due to that inner strength, that God had considered him faithful, to entrust him with the message to, to take the gospel to the, uh, the non-Jewish world. And then he thanks God, also in verse 12, he thanks Christ for appointing him to service. Um, that word service is the word from which we get deacon in the church, diakonia. And there are many forms of Christian service or ministry, but Paul was talking, I think, specifically about how he had been called to serve as a missionary to the Gentiles around the Mediterranean world. But then in verse 13, he, he, he reminds Timothy of what he had been before. And he tells him how he had received mercy from God and why God had had mercy on him. Look how he describes himself. He says, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. So he's saying what he had been. He's looking back to several years before and saying, this, this characterized my life. Uh, his blasphemy was that he spoke evil uh, of Jesus Christ, and he tried to force others to do the same thing. The way he was a persecutor was that he had tried to destroy uh, the early church, and in reality, he had been persecuting Christ, but he did not know it at the time. And then behind the blasphemy and persecution, he says he was a violent man, that his arrogance uh, and his contempt for others made him violent toward others. Now, most of you here know uh, what Paul was like before. And you, if, you've, if you've read from the book of Acts, which was written by whom? Luke then we have the detailed account of this man's conversion. But let me just summarize it for you. Uh, when he was born, he was given the name Saul. And he was born in a city called Tarsus. He was born as a Roman citizen with all the, the benefits and rights that came with that. Uh, Tarsus was a center of learning uh, in that time. And perhaps if you hear, when we hear the term Oxford, England, today. You know, that's what you, you don't think of a, a manufacturing area, you think of, of education. Well, Tarsus was that way in the Roman world. Uh, he was personally taught with the best-known tutor, the best-known teacher in his day, a man named Gamaliel. And so he had the best education that money could buy. We know he was a, a not only Jewish, but he was zealous about his religion, about his faith. 
Uh, he was born of the tribe of Benjamin, and he became a Pharisee. So in other words, he, he, he had the, uh, is it the uh, black American express card of religious credentials? He, he had it. And he was sincere about it. We, we have no reason to doubt that, that he was sincere in what he believed. He, he didn't think it was a lie. He didn't use it for his own purposes, best we know. He really believed that Jesus and his followers were dangerous. He thought they were deluded. He thought they were wrong. And so in his sincere zeal, he was there in full support, as we read in Acts chapter 7, when one of the first deacons named Stephen was martyred, was put to death for his faith in Christ. He had, he had committed no crime. He had done nothing wrong. He is killed by the men around Saul because of what he believed and what he preached. And so Saul was there, and he held the cloaks of those who were going to, to throw the rocks. Now, why? I was thinking as I was working on this, uh, I was thinking, um, why did he hold the, the coats? So they wouldn't be stolen, you know. And, and so he's there giving support, doing what he could as they put Stephen to death. Now, after Stephen's death, he becomes a man on a mission because it's like a shark with a scent of blood. If they could do that to Stephen, hey, there's more to come. And so he gets legal jurisdiction, you might say, permission to go and lock up Christians, to throw them in jail and to punish them. And so with that background, that's what Paul has in mind when he's saying that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. But now there's a change that took place. And in verse 13, he tells, he summarizes it by just saying that I was shown mercy. He summarizes his whole conversion by I was shown mercy. Now, humanly speaking, I think we would say a man that had had the convictions of Saul, humanly speaking, we would say nothing can change that person's mind. You know, you and I meet people, maybe we are people, that we believe and hold certain things dear to us for one reason or another, and we're passionate about things, and for, humanly speaking, nothing's going to change that. There, there's nothing on the horizon saying that the change is going to come to that person or they're ever going to change their mind. Well, that's how Saul was. Now, here's what happened. He was converted while he's traveling to persecute Christians on, the, on this road going to the city of Damascus. And we know from the book of Acts that a light comes down out of heaven. And he falls to the ground. And he hears a voice, literal voice, speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He is struck blind for three days. During those three days, he, do, he doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. God sends a godly man, a believer named Ananias, to see Saul. Now, when, when Ananias gets the message that he's supposed to do this, uh, he knows the reputation of this man, and he is not thrilled about the assignment. But he goes. He goes in obedience to the Lord. And the persecutor becomes the apostle. The man who is trying to kill the messengers becomes a messenger himself. And Saul's name is changed to Paul. 
And he summarizes it here by saying he received mercy, and we could add to that grace and faith and love. And now years later, I don't know how many years I didn't go into the background study, but we know for a period of about six years, God, I mean for three years, God set him aside to teach him before he ever started public ministry. So many years have passed, but his conversion was fresh in his mind. Now I want to divert from the passage to say something. I, I, I know a number of you that are members of this church uh, more than an acquaintance level, but I couldn't look out at this room and, and know everybody's testimony. But I assume some of you that have your faith in Christ, that are trusting in him, that have gone through what Paul, what Saul went through. Some of you as children from Christian homes, perhaps, some as teenagers, some as adults. It is very common for me to hear people that became believers as adults to say they look back with remorse at their younger years and they just say, I wish I'd come to know Christ so much earlier. Well, I want to encourage you with this. You have a distinct advantage if you became a believer as an adult because you have clear in your mind the difference between darkness and light. And you, hopefully, have seen a transformation of your life that can serve you well, even as it did Paul the Apostle. He never forgot it. He always drew back. From that experience, he would go back and draw off his conversion experience in his present life and in his present ministry. So I was converted as a teenager, but I'm still it's very vivid to me. My thinking and my actions and my mindset before I was converted. Uh, and that can serve us well. It served Paul well. And so to use our modern terminology, he never ceased to be amazed at grace. He, he, he counted, he did, God showed mercy to me, to me. So no wonder he says here that it's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. What is he affirming? He's affirming that the gospel is true. He's affirming that the offer of the gospel is universal. But what does he mean when he says he's the chief of sinners? Well, yeah, he did some bad stuff. But, I mean, I, don't, I doubt if we'd list him in the hall of fame of sin, you know, we wouldn't put Saul or Paul at the top. What's he mean? Here's what I think he means. I don't think he was comparing himself to everyone in the world and then by comparison saying he was the worst. I don't think that's the intent. Here's the point. If you are trying to get to heaven by being good, the way you do that is to compare yourself with others. That's the way legalism always works. You have to come up with a set of rules that you can keep. That's why I don't think anybody would have created the Ten Commandments. No human. I mean, who would think that up? Who would create a list of laws that will condemn us all? <laughs> Besides God, thinking up. Anyway, self-righteousness always functions that way. But when we are convicted by sin of the Holy Spirit, one of the immediate results is we give up all comparisons with others. We see ourselves before God, and we really are not that, that preoccupied with how bad or how good our neighbor is. For example, when the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray, you know, as Jesus told that, the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, even like that guy back there, that tax collector. 
But the tax collector has a different perspective. He prayed, God have mercy on me, the sinner. He is focused on himself before God. So the Pharisee focused on comparisons with others, but the tax collector was concerned only with himself in his standing before God. Now that's what happens when we see God. We see ourselves as we really are, sinners in need of a Savior, in need of a Redeemer, and we no longer compare ourselves to others to try to gain standing before the Lord through that comparison. That's what Paul is doing here when he says, I am the worst of sinners, I am the chief of sinners. He was that keenly aware of his own sin. Then he says why God had mercy on him. And the only answer is because God is a merciful God. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Um, I think his conversion, in a sense, remains a source of hope to uh, otherwise hopeless cases. Look, don't give up praying for that relative or that friend or that brother or sister who right now seems so hardened toward the gospel or the things of God or toward you. Uh, look, at, look at this guy. I mean, this is, he was 180 degrees changed, you know, from what his natural bent. Now, to sum it up, although he'd been a blasphemer and violent persecutor, he was overwhelmed by the grace of God, and it was that experience of God's grace that motivated him to minister to others and to evangelize others. Now, I rarely meet a, a Christian who doesn't want to be a positive, effective witness for Christ, but I think three attitudes have to be in our lives for that to happen, and they're here in, in Paul. Um, there has to be a conviction that the gospel is true. If you doubt whether Jesus is the only way to God, if you doubt whether there's really a heaven and a hell, you're not going to talk to anybody about it. You're just not. Not in this day and age. Not in this climate. Uh, if you Also, I think you must be experiencing life transformation. If you, if you don't have a, a living, growing, transforming relationship with Christ, odds are against you that you're ever going to speak to anybody about it. You just won't be enthusiastic about it. I wouldn't be. Third, there has to be gratitude for what God has done in you. And I, and I think that's where it helps to think about your conversion. Think about what God has done. How many of you have read Flyboys? Anybody read that? Only one. You know, I asked a Sunday morning crowd this a, a couple of years ago, and about 40%, of, uh, 30, 40% of the people raised their hands. And mainly it was older people. If you didn't read, James Bradley wrote this uh, back in 2003. He wrote Flags of Our Fathers. His dad was one of the ones that helped you know, raise the, uh, the flag on Iwo Jima. And uh, this was written about nine pilots uh, in World War II. And the information of what had happened to them was basically classified until a number of years ago. George Bush was the only one, if I remember right, that survived out of those nine uh, or their stories. Maybe a few others survived too, but the, his, he was the only one that came out and could tell what had happened. Uh, it's a gripping story. It's a tr true story of courage. Anyway, it mentions here in the book, I read this book because a few years ago I was meeting with a couple of my childhood friends who are pastors, one in Savannah and one in Atlanta, and I'm going to stop in about two minutes. And uh, one of the guys who I stay in contact with and grew up with basically from like the, the third grade on up, uh, his dad was a doctor. He was my ear, nose, and throat doctor when I was a child. And his dad died a number of years ago, but 
while we were talking one day, he said, my dad was on the Randolph, the USS Randolph. Well, that was an aircraft carrier. It was decommissioned some time ago. The last real important thing it did was pick up John Glenn after he'd gone into outer space. But the, the Randolph is mentioned here in this book. And, and he said, your dad was on the Randolph? Uh, one of the third friend said that. And my, my buddy Mark said, yeah. He said, in fact, a number of years ago when my dad, before he died, he took me to a reunion of, of uh, people that had served on the Randolph. I think they were up in Norfolk or somewhere like that. He said, I went with him. He said, we walked in this huge hotel ballroom and all these, all these guys. And he said, this, this short guy came up. He had tattoos on his arms. He said, this old salt, you know. And he came up and you know, hugged my dad. And he came over to the side and spoke to me and said, so you're, uh, you're, you're Robert's boy. And, and my friend said, yeah. He said, I love your dad. He said, why do you love my dad? He said, well, let me tell you what happened. He said, we, uh, I was a guy on a, the deck, and we were bringing planes in, and we were in this just terrible weather, and the, the carrier was just rocking, and this plane was coming in, and at the last moment, I waved it off, but he came on in anyway, and the, the uh, propeller just cut me right down the middle, and this guy, next thing he knew, he was laying on the deck, and he said, all my insides were out. And he said, I was laying there, and the first face I saw was your father. And he said, I woke up a few days later in the hospital on that carrier, and the next face I saw was your dad. And he looked at me and said, don't worry, you're going to be okay. He said, I love your dad. He saved my life. And my friend said to Mark, your dad ever say anything about that? He said, never said a word about it. Never. Isn't that something? And here's this guy, that many years later, the gratitude the gratitude for my friend's dad. That's what Paul had. Paul had that every day for what God had done in his life. And that's what we need. And I need more time, but I don't have any. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that gratitude like this breaks forth in spontaneous praise, as Paul does here, to give you praise and glory because you're the one king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. We give you thanks and praise today. In Jesus' name, amen.